If you're one of those who listens to the show every day when it comes out, uh, and if you're current with the show, then you're probably in vacation mode. As I record this here, it's Tuesday, November 24, 2015, and I'm getting ready to pack up and head out of town for Thanksgiving. However, let's not check out too early. I've got one more heavy lifting show for you, and today is going to be a heavy lifting show. We're going to get into some meat and potatoes of investing and talk about why index fund investing and passive investing is the only appropriate way for anybody to invest ever. (laughs) Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host, (laughs) and welcome to the show. Yes, one more heavy lifting show. Let's dig into some meat on investing. My guest today is a man named Rick Ferry. Rick is a really awesome guy, a very knowledgeable investment manager and and, uh, financial analyst. He is also the founder of a company called Portfolio Solutions, and today he's going to give us a masterclass on investing at asset allocation. I was able to connect with Rick recently while I was at the XYPN 15 conference. He was a sponsor of that conference in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, a few months ago. And while we were there, we were uh, I kind of connected with him, and I was very impressed by him. And I thought he would be a great uh, resource for you on the show. So, uh, if you're in holiday mode, uh, and if for you it doesn't seem like fun to <laughs> talk about <laughs> investing in index funds and all that stuff, you might want to wait a few days. Uh, that might, and then check back with this next week. Otherwise, here's one more heavy lift show today and then tomorrow we'll have a light and fun show for you as well playing interviews this week while i head out of town with my family uh heading over to central florida to hang out with family in central florida uh away from the coast Uh, but we'll be back after next week uh, so the show will be off on thursday and friday but we should be back on monday of next week 30th of november uh so Let's talk about sponsors right up here at the front, and then we'll get to the interview, and we will get you in and out today. Uh, I'll do sponsors quickly. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Jay Fleischman. Jay is an awesome guy. He is a student loan and bankruptcy attorney. He is also the host of the Student Loan Show podcast, and he is a past guest on Radical Personal Finance uh, for two episodes, episodes number 214 and 258. If you have student loans, you should call Jay. I was talking with somebody on the phone yesterday, and uh, he was mentioning that he had student loans, and I, he was a listener of the show, and I said, uh, have you called Jay? He said, no, no, no. I hear you talk about that. And I said, dude, what are you doing? Call Jay. <laughs> call Jay. Uh, and I really mean that because it's probably going to be – if you call Jay and or go to studentloanshow.com slash radical, sign up at least for Jay's $50 uh, federal student loan review – probably going to be one of the better 50 bucks that you're ever going to spend. He is a really knowledgeable guy. And he if there is a loophole that you can find that will help you in your student loan repayment plan to pay them off quicker and to pay them off with less money out of pocket to cut your interest expenses, things like that, Jay is the guy who will help you find that. So if you have student loans, go to studentloanshow.com slash radical. If you doubt that Jay is the guy who can be worth 50 bucks for a uh, federal uh, consultation, that by the way, it's a $25 discount uh, off of his normal rate. Uh, for listeners of the show. If you doubt that, go and listen to episode 214 of the show and then listen to episode 258 of the show. You'll find them on the website or in your feed uh, and go ahead and listen there. And I bet you, you won't doubt 
why I say it's worth it at the end of that. Uh, also, make sure you subscribe to this podcast, Student Loan Show. Uh, you can find it in all the major podcast directories. Which leads me to sponsor the day number two is a sponsor that we introduced on yesterday's show, SoFi, Social Finance, S-O-F-I, SoFi. If you have student loans and one of the things that you want to look at is can you refinance them at a lower interest rate? The reason I led with Jay as a sponsor is you should first consult with Jay. And if your option is in the back end to refinance it, he will tell you that. And then you should investigate using SoFi. Uh, you'll find a link, a referral link for me and for you at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash SoFi. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash SoFi. S-O-F-I, which is short for, again, social finance. And at that link, if you use that link and you refinance your student loans through them, you can put an application in online. It's very easy, very fast to do, and you can find out what your rates would be, see if it would save you some money. Uh, if you use that link, then I'll get a commission and you'll save 200 bucks. Uh, you'll get 200 bucks credited back to your account. Also, if you go through that and you want to check into their personal loan refinancing options, you can also find that at that link as well. So just go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash SoFi. Those are our sponsors of the day. And with that, let's go to the interview. Please welcome Mr. Rick Ferry. Rick, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. Uh, thank you, Joshua. It's great to be here. <laughs> so I owe you an interview on the show since I did my best the other day. You were a sponsor of XYPN 15, and I did my best to eat you out of house and home at the at the steakhouse or the Brazilian steakhouse dinner that you provided for us. Uh, I know. I got the bill, and they said there was this big guy with a red beard. He, he, you, know, you thought the bill was going to be this, but we had to add another 15% just for him. <laughs> exactly. Well, I quit eating carbohydrates a while ago. And so uh, I was, and when you're at a conference like this, it's challenging to find food to do that. So my strategy is I start by having a big breakfast. And that day, uh, I'd had a breakfast very early in the morning, and then it was all day long, and we got to the Brazilian Steakhouse, and I did my best to eat about eight pounds of meat. No, <laughs> for, I'm, glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. For dinner. So let's kick off. Uh, we're going to talk some finance today and talk about investing, and you're a real expert. So uh, don't be scared to make today a little bit heavy. We're not talking necessarily to a mainstream uh, audience here. Uh, we're talking to people who have an above-average interest, interest in finance. Uh, start by just sharing with us a little bit about your story and a little bit about your company, Portfolio Solutions, and what you guys do. Well, my story is uh, back in the 1980s when I came into the field, I went into the traditional brokerage model, mm-hmm. uh, and I started using the products that I was told to use. Uh, but what I did was I started analyzing the returns of those products and as I did that, I began to realize that the returns weren't matching the markets. Uh, and I decided that I should go out and educate myself to find out uh, how to manage money mm-hmm. so that um, I could maybe better make better decisions for my clients. And then I when I became a CFA, Charter Financial Analyst, and got my master's in science and finance, and I created a lot of analytics to analyze the performance of money managers. Try not to hit the table. You're good. All good. Keep going. And uh, that's when I began to realize through my research that the money managers were not keeping up with the markets Mm -hmm. and that the best thing for my clients would be to just use index funds, which were beginning to grow. So that would have been about what year? Well, that was in the mid-1990s. Okay. There wasn't uh, the analytics out there. There wasn't the research that they have now. So it was a lot of deep digging and actual experience using these products that got me to this point. How painful was that to be selling one thing and then doing your research and, and questioning that? 
Um, okay, so before I went into uh, finance, I was in the Marine Corps, and I, w- I flew fighter aircraft. Okay. And I used to land on aircraft carriers. <laughs> so when you do that, everything is very precise. It is what it is. There's no, um, uh, no joking around about it. It, it, it. The facts are the facts, and you're... And, and you react to that exactly as they are. Mm-hmm. So when I went into the finance industry, I thought that was the way it was. So right. you were getting good, clean information, and, and it was uh, beneficial to you, and you were able to do your job. Well, it was, that's exactly the opposite of that. So that was a little bit of a reality check of what, the, what that was. So I realized that I had to do what the numbers said, what was reality. And uh, when I made that decision and had that epiphany, um, I, didn't cha- I didn't change my mind. I, mean, I never went back. Um, but yeah, it was very, I got very angry mm-hmm. about what I was seeing. And uh, that didn't make me feel good. And the last few years I was in the brokerage industry, I was miserable. But I stayed because I had to figure out the plan for how I was going to use this information to help my clients. So where did you go from there? Well, I actually started at Kidder Peabody. That's no longer with us. And I went to Smith Barney, who is no longer with us. But, <laughs> uh, the, uh, I was in it for 10 years. Um, but in the last three years, I was planning to start my company, Portfolio Solutions, which did low-cost, uh, index-based money management. and uh, But it, 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 there was nothing out there at the time. And I was really one of the first ones who was first person who was going to put an RIA together right. that just did this. And are you serving individual clients or are you serving advisors? Well, we, uh, for, the, for the past 15 years, we were serving individual investors mostly. Now we're serving both individual investors and advisors. And we're creating the uh, channel to distribute through advisors. And you are focusing on exclusively passive index funds. We're, we're okay, so we're getting into the technical right. aspect of it. So let's talk about uh, that, if you, mm-hmm. if you mind. So the first thing I do is look at, uh, at one level, what is an asset class, right. and um, isolate out different asset classes. And by the way, this is, this is all written in one of my books called All About Asset Allocation. Speak a little louder. Um, this is... All, the, all this information is in one of my books called All About Asset Allocation. Mm-hmm. So you start out at the asset class level determining what is an asset class and then which asset classes should you in, invest in because there are some that you wouldn't invest in because they don't give you a real return or maybe they're not investable. And once you come up with the asset classes that are investable, uh, then you find the products that best represent the asset class in a low-cost way. Now, most of the time that points to index funds, but there are times when you may not use an index fund because the, um, the asset class is best represented by something that's not an index fund. Mm-hmm. And I don't know to give specifics, but let's say high-yield bond, right. uh, part of the market, the best product out there is not an index fund. It's actually a low-cost actively managed fund, and I can't get into for compliance purposes what one that is, but I think we all know which one and what big mammoth company out there has that. Right, right. (laughs) 
So uh, let's start with answering that question. What is an asset class according to your definition? Because it's a term that we throw around a lot of times. And as financial advisors, we're great at throwing terms out that people don't actually understand. And we don't, we're not great at supporting them. So how do you answer the question? Well, that's a good question. There are really, again, two. There are asset classes, and then there are the ones that you would want to invest in. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at it and you say, is there something unique about this asset class? Is it fundamentally different than another asset class? For example, bonds are fundamentally different than equity. Uh, What backs the bonds, uh, how bonds pay you a return, these are all fundamentally different than equity. So equities and bonds are two different asset classes. Then you look at something like commodities or precious metals, and you say, what about that? Uh, Well, they're physical. Um, The return you get from those is different than the return you get from bonds and the return you get from stocks. Mm -hmm. So you isolate these things out by, are they fundamentally different? Do they have fundamentally different risks? How do you measure whether they're fundamentally different risks? And I do that through a, a, roll, a rolling correlation analysis, not just a correlation analysis, but a rolling correlation analysis. What's the difference? Okay, a correlation, for example, if you were going to take stocks and bonds and we were going to look back 50 years and we were going to say, what's the correlation between stocks and bonds? And you did it as one flat 50-year number, you would come up with something like 0.1. Okay which means there is not much correlation between stocks and bonds. But in fact, the correlation between stocks and bonds is never 0.1. It goes through 0.1 on occasion, but it's never 0.1. So you have to do a rolling correlation where you're looking at three-year periods of time rolling forward over that 50-year period, and then you can see how the correlation between two asset classes shifts Sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's positive. And that shifting correlation, uh, the variability of the correlation is telling you that there are different risks in stocks than there are in bonds Mm -hmm. because the correlation varies over time. You can do the same thing between common stocks and real estate. And you can see that the correlation is sometimes negative or sometimes positive, but it shifts over time. And therefore, there are different risk factors within those asset classes. Same thing with commodities. And so you use this to determine, is the asset class fundamentally different? And one test to determine whether the asset class is fundamentally different is whether there are different risks in the asset class. And you determine that or you validate that through a rolling correlation analysis. So the the reason why this is important is from the scientific perspective, when we're constructing a portfolio, uh, the correlation or the correlation coefficient is indicating, do these two asset classes tend to move together or do they tend to move in different directions? So if you had uh, stock of uh, Pepsi and stock of Coca-Cola, those would be highly correlated. You would expect them in many ways to move together. There might be some variability between the companies, but they're both in similar markets. They're going to be subject to similar economic influences. Uh, The idea of, say, stocks and bonds is, well, if stocks go up, do stocks go down? Bonds. Excuse me. Correct. Thank you. Uh, Do bonds go down? And when we're integrating a portfolio, a portfolio manager would love to have 
asset classes that were the exact opposite. Uh, that if asset class A goes up, asset class always B goes down by the same amount because brought together mathematically, that lowers the total variability, the total risk of the portfolio. The problem is those asset classes, there are no asset classes that are perfectly inversely correlated. They all have some coefficient between them that sometimes they go up, sometimes they go together. And so the goal of why this is important for the listener is you want to have asset classes that you need to understand the correlation between asset classes on this basis, on a year-to-year basis or on a market-to-market basis, so that you can figure out how to construct them together in a portfolio to deliver the maximum return at the minimum level of risk. Is that accurate? That's a perfect textbook explanation that doesn't actually exist in reality. Okay, but that's, that's right. So let's okay. talk about reality then. So the reality is, as you said, there are no negatively correlated asset classes, right. except if you went long the S&P and at the same time shorted the S&P, right. which gives you a zero return. With and you got to pay your premiums along the way. You pay fees, right? So it doesn't make any sense to do that. What the best that you can find is asset classes that are randomly correlated with each other and that uh, at times may be negative and at times positive. That's really the best you're going to find. The problem with that is that sometimes asset classes all go down together Mm -hmm. and you can't get away from it unless you have a portion in cash. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm saying you should, but from a portfolio management standpoint, um, as you can have contagion within all asset classes. Let's take 2008, for example. International stocks, real estate, commodities, I mean, everything went down together. Corporate bonds, high-yield bonds, everything went down. Treasury bonds were the only thing that did well. So whatever portion you actually had in treasuries did well. So it, at that time, you should have had some in treasuries. But you say, okay, well, I'll always have some in treasuries because they're negatively correlated with stocks. Well, no, not during the late 1990s. During the late 1990s, bonds went down and stocks went down. Why? Because it's a variable. That's why I say you have Mm -hmm. to look at a rolling correlation as opposed to a point correlation because the rolling correlation will show you that there are times where this will occur. And it's important to not be seduced by modern portfolio theory into thinking that it's a safe uh, way all the time. So uh, back to the issue that you raised before we talked about correlation about, you know, which funds do we choose? Uh, And by the way, throughout this interview, please correct me. If I get anything wrong, don't (laughs) feel any need to allow me to, to, to go on. But this is where I'm at currently with my own perspective on the question of active versus passive. You have to look at the actual market. So I could believe that for the most part, something like the stocks that are listed on the New York Stock Exchange, that's a highly efficient market. There are a limited number of issues. There are a massive number of analysts looking at things. The companies that are involved are the most public companies in the world. They're the most highly regulated. Everything is is conveyed in advance, all of the information is there. So I could believe that that uh, market is very efficient and that it's very difficult 
for a manager to bring a lot of value in that marketplace. However, when I look at something like the bond market, and we go from, if you know the numbers, you know, a few thousand issues to many tens and tens of thousands of individual bond issues. Well, in this situation now, it's very hard for me to believe, that, well, I, I believe at the moment, that underwriting is going to make a big difference. Individually underwriting various bond issues, there are so many thousands of issues uh, that are out in the marketplace that an analyst can bring some value, if for nothing else, than to provide some basic screens against municipalities that are bankrupt and getting ready to launch a multi-billion dollar uh, stadium for a team that's defunct and has no fan base. So something as simple as that, or moving from, say, large cap U.S. stocks to a micro cap area where underwriting now is going to make a much bigger difference. So I get annoyed when people paint with broad brush strokes and say, well, index investing and passive investing is always better mm -hmm. than active investing. And I say, well, wait a second. Let's look and see, is it feasible that a manager can add some value. Real estate would be another example. A real estate index fund might have some place if you're just simply saying, I want to figure out how to uh, factor the variability of interest rates and the market in general as it reacts to the economy in. But any real estate investor knows that the actual underwriting of each rental property is of key importance because the property in your town that's in the ideal up-and-coming neighborhood versus the property on the outskirts of town that's in the neighborhood that's going to pot will make a massive difference in your returns. So let me annoy you. Please, this is good. <laughs> you are correct in, in some parts of what you say, but okay. you're incorrect in most of what you just said. Okay. <laughs> For, the data doesn't show that even in the bond market, the active managers are able to outperform the benchmarks, even though the benchmarks are cap-weighted, which you think about it, companies that are in trouble and need to issue a lot of debt end up with a bigger part of the bond market. So why would you want to buy more of them? But the fact is, the indexes actually outperform most of the active managers who are doing what you suggested, trying to find the inefficiencies and outperform. The same thing with emerging markets, the same thing with microcap, the same thing with whatever market. In the long run, when you look at the data of the active managers who are paid, the professionals who are paid to try to outperform those benchmarks, the data shows in every asset class, in every category, that the benchmark outperforms most managers. Not all, but here's the problem. I can't figure out, and neither can most people, which managers I'm going to use and pay who will be the minority who will outperform. So I, you, you just can't tell in advance. So that's difficult. Most of the time, you're going to pick one who's going to underperform. But that's just one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, and what's always uh, kind of lost in the discussion is uh, the, the next derivative of this is, well, let's look at the managers who outperformed and let's see on average how much they outperform by on an annualized basis. And let's look at the managers who underperformed and let's see how much they underperformed by on an annualized basis. And here's the problem. 
a minority of managers outperform. So therefore, the probability of you finding one is low, and therefore you would expect a huge risk premium for finding one, a very high excess return if you actually found a manager that outperformed. But in fact, the, the alpha that they deliver is exceedingly low relative to the huge risks that you took going out trying to find that manager and by not using indexing. The average underperformance of active managers is two to three times the average alpha that the outperforming managers deliver. So even when you win, you lose. It's not a fair game. You're not getting paid enough for the risks that you took. So it's a probability. There's a low probability you're going to find an active manager that outperforms uh, um, ex ante, which means, you know, before Before. they outperform. Mm -hmm. And then the payout that they're delivering on average isn't nearly enough to compensate you for what the average underperformance is of all the other managers. And by the way, there's a lot of managers who don't even make it that far. They go out of business or they end up merging with another company. So this is all about probability and payout. For a portfolio that a person is going to put together for themselves or for their clients, if you put a portfolio together of only index funds in every single asset class, and let's say you're going to use 10 different asset classes and 10 different styles, and you only use index funds, the probability that that portfolio of index funds will outperform any randomly selected portfolio of actively managed funds in the same asset classes is over 90%. But there's no reason to, to select a randomly selected portfolio. So of we can go into that. Right? Exactly. I understand you can go into, well, we can just pick the ones that have low fees. So we look at the funds that have low fees that are actively managed, for example, because we know that fees matter. And we find that a high percentage of the low fee actively managed funds track the indexes very closely. In other words, they're closet index funds. So you're paying more money for basically an index fund. It doesn't increase the probability by very much that those funds are going to outperform. So you say, okay, what else can we do? Well, let's look at past performance. Well, we study after study after study shows that if you pick managers based on their past performance, there's a high probability you're going to underperform in the future. There's a, what's called persistent studies by S&P that are put out every six months. And if you just say, we take 100 funds and we say, okay, here are our 100 funds that... Um, outperformed or in the top quartile in the last three or five years, how did those hundred funds perform over the next three to five years? We find out that not even, it doesn't even come up to a random, random number. You would figure over uh, 25% would stay in the top 5%, uh, 25% over the next five or three or five years. And it's less than 25%. And it's not even random. So it's extremely difficult to say that past performance gives you good future performance. You can't say that low fees give you good future performance. So what is it that you're going to use that's going to determine what the performance of a fund is going to be going forward? And do you really even need to take that risk as an investor? Yeah. So then why are you utilizing a managed bond fund uh, of an unnamed origin in some of your portfolios? (laughs) Because, uh, again, looking at... I want to capture the risk and the return of the asset class in the most diversified, lowest cost way. Now, indexing and index funds and ETFs are not to the point yet in every single asset class 
where uh, where they are the best representation of an asset class. So this particular unnamed fund that I can't name for compliance reasons has 6,000 municipal bonds in it, and the fee is, I think, 10 basis points, and it's an actively managed fund. The best closest, act, uh, uh, best closest index fund has maybe 2,000 municipal bonds, and the fee is 25 basis points. So my point is, well, the index fund is higher cost, has less diversification than the active fund. Uh, and so if I want to get the best representation of an asset class, I'm going to use this fund, even though technically the active fund, you know, technically it's active, but it's a better index fund of municipal bonds than the actual municipal bond index funds out there. And that's what I mean by, you know, you've got to look at what's in the fund. What are you trying to, to capture? And most of the time, or a lot of times it's index funds, but other times it's not going to be. So do you think the management of that fund then is... No, they're not adding any value. I'm not buying them because they're adding value. You're just value. buying them because they're a massive fund and they're cheap. And they yeah. represent the broad bit, broadest access to the market in a single uh, security. Okay, now I don't generally... Yes, correct, but I, it, that was true about municipal bonds. But let's talk about, instead of uh, uh, representing a market, let's talk about representing a risk. Okay. Okay, so if... I do uh, portfolio asset allocation as really risk diversification. Mm-hmm. It's quite good. So you, you isolate out all the different risks in the marketplace, and then you make a determination as to whether or not you're going to take a position in that risk. For example, in the bond market, there's two general risks. There's uh, term risk, which is uh, long longevity or maturity type risk, where you invest in long-term bonds, you get a higher return than investing in short-term bonds. Then there's credit risk, where if you get less quality bonds, you get a higher return than high quality bonds. So you have to determine where you want to fit, you know, those two risks, how much of those risks you want to have in your portfolio. And then you go from there to seek out the best representation of those risks. And those are the funds that you buy to put in the portfolio, as long as they're well diversified and low cost. And same thing goes with factor investing. For example, if you believe in taking a bigger position to value stocks, and we can, we can have a whole discussion about this and make an hour long, but if you decide that you want to take a position in value stocks, the question is, how do you determine value? Which factors do you use to determine value? How do you measure the uh, uh, cost per unit of risk in each of the funds that you're looking at? So if I want to get more value exposure in my portfolio, I just use a value index fund. Well, it turns out no, because they don't actually give you the best value exposure. You would use some other company that I can't name <laughs> to get the best value exposure in your portfolio, even though it's a little more expensive. And even though it's quantitative or actively managed, it's the best way to get that value risk in your portfolio. Um, and it's not an index. So what's the proof that you have if you're constructing a portfolio? Uh, let's walk through the process of constructing a portfolio. Um, pretend I come in and I say, Rick, I've got, you know, here's my retirement portfolio. It's got a million dollars in it. Uh, I need to invest it in such a way that, uh, that you're going to, that you're going to, that I, it's going to provide for my family's financial security and retirement. Uh, what's the first stage in that process? Okay. So you were talking now, though, what I've been talking so far and all we've talked about now is my side, which is right. the academic side. Right. Okay. But, he, but where I want to go is I want to talk through okay, the around. client side, right. but then 
I want to go back to the academic side and say, how okay. do you construct the portfolio, figuring out which proportion for value uh, to measure the uh, risk and goals of my portfolio? Well, that, this is a good, great question. So now I have to flip around and put my financial advisor hat on because right. I'm sitting in front of a client and I'm right. talking with the client. Right. So we do the basic, who are you? Um, what risks do you have in your life? Uh, you know, do you have job security? Uh, what kind of income do you have? Uh, you know, all the kind of basic financial planning issues to determine how much you're going to need at some retirement date, how much you're going to need to draw off that portfolio at a retirement date in order for you to achieve your life goals. Right. Okay? So we have that conversation. Built the financial plan. Exactly. It's, what, it's all it is. Now, mm-hmm. From there, it'll come up with a stock and bond mix and maybe a portion carved out for emergency funds. But Mm -hmm. just leave that out for a while and just talk about how much of the portfolio should be in lower risk assets and how much can we put away for higher risk assets to have a greater return later on down the road. Very basic stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I'm talking with an individual investor here. And we come up with um, not so much... Well, first, we come up with the number of the asset allocation. In my mind, I generate what kind of rate of return they're going to need, and that, in my mind, generates what kind of a stock and bond mix they should have. Uh, But that's not the end of it. I have to make sure that whatever that asset allocation is fits the client's emotional makeup so that they're not going to capitulate with that asset allocation uh, you know, in a bad market. So we don't, we don't do clients any good whatsoever if we recommend asset allocations that they can't handle in a bad market. Right. Um, and then a lot of times the clients have, uh, you know, they may have a high tolerance for risk, but they shouldn't be taking much risk based on where they are and what's going on. So we go through this whole process with them. So let's say we come up with a portfolio that's 50-50, 50 stocks, 50 bonds. Mm-hmm. Great. At that point, I say to them, Oh, by the way, also look at the tax side of it, too. Is this taxable money, non-taxable money? Right. So IRA, non-taxable. So the next thing is, at that point, we basically stop with right. the client. Then I, we create the portfolio. So mm-hmm. the client's not involved in that side of it. But I'm putting together, based on my academic work, what has the highest probability of maximizing the risk and return within each asset class, stocks and bonds, and then I put it together, the 50-50 portfolio based on that. So you're looking at that and you, you come up with the idea, okay, of these stocks, we want 35% weighted to large cap stocks. Uh, now, within the 35%, what's your proof of what proportion should be uh, de- designated into value versus, sure. uh, versus other aspects of large cap stocks? Well, let me make another plug for my book all about asset allocation because nice. it's all in there <laughs> uh, of the basically the efficient frontier of uh, total market to value type investing. And it shows you that somewhere around 30% seems to be a middle of the road number. And everything, by the way, with asset allocation, when you're talking about these things, is a sort of a middle of the road number. And, and I can give you a rule of thumb. If you take the risky equity asset class and the non-riskier you know, large cap stocks versus small cap value, small cap value has higher risk and higher return expectation and large cap has lower risk and lower return. So if you do an efficient frontier between those two, you come up with about 30% every time. doesn't matter what the asset right, classes right. are. The efficient frontier ends up putting you somewhere around 30% roughly. You follow that, what I just said? Yeah. Let's, yeah. 
So that's, that, that's how I build it. Now, I actually only use 25% go into uh, these factor-type funds. I don't even go to 30, and that's because of psychological. There's too much tracking error in the portfolio if you get much above 25% in these factor-type strategies, where the client may capitulate because the, the, the equity portfolio is, is underperforming the stock market by too much when those factors don't deliver. I just, I just threw a whole bunch of stuff yeah. in there, by the way. Yeah. Like, you know, a whole book can be written on that. <laughs> Indeed. It's very, it gets pretty meaty. Yeah. Instead of going deeper into that, I want to ask about the concept of risk, specifically with stocks versus bonds. Uh, when I was a practicing financial advisor, speaking with clients I, er, er, with a responsibility on paper managing portfolios, I never could have made this statement, nor could I have put it into practice, because the firm has to protect itself from uh, has to protect itself uh, based upon the uh, based upon the uh, need for the client's portfolio to match their risk, stated risk tolerance on paper based upon standard investment industry norms. If the client says, I'm a, a balanced investor I'm a, or I'm a moderately conservative investor, their portfolio needs to reflect that with an aspect of stocks versus bonds. However, since I no longer have that responsibility, I can make a statement like, like this. Uh, for me, I am persuaded that it is easier for me to modify my emotional makeup with regard to stocks and the variability of the market and also to plan appropriately in my personal finances to counter for the massive swings of up and down market risk such that in my own personal portfolios, I would rather be in a 100% stock allocation in order to generate the highest long-term return. And I get very concerned in working with clients and looking at, at, at client portfolios with the amount of assets that people have dedicated towards bonds based upon this concept of I'm a conservative investor. And I get concerned because the long, I look at the long-term return versus the risk that they face of the decrease in value of their money, the inflation risk. And I say... It's easier for me, and if I, were men, if I had an iron fist over, say, my dad and mom's accounts, it's easier for me to make a financial plan with enough cash on hand that I don't have to pull from the market if we get a down year. To, to, I want the 100% stock portfolio because I want the highest total maximum return. So I don't personally buy for me or for my mom and dad. I don't buy the concept of, oh, we got to do a 60-40 split. Am I wrong? No, not for you. You're not wrong because you understand it and because you're at the level of your knowledge where you understand that you can put money aside, which, by the way, is like a bond. So, right. therefore, you actually do have a right. bond portfolio. Right, right. So, you are not 100% equity. But um, the, the bottom line on that is that that's for you. Absolutely. And, you know, I am 58 years old and I have 100% equity. Uh, well, crazy. Why would a 58-year-old have 100% equity? Well, only because, well, I'm going to get a military pension. I've got a small pension coming in from Smith Barney. I've got a small pension that's going to be coming in from Peter Peabody. i got a small pension. Oh, I'll be getting Social Security. My wife's going to be getting Social Security. I, I have right. that. So I don't need bonds, per se, mm -hmm. in my portfolio, with the exception of the emergency fund that right. I have. Okay. But that's everybody's different. Um, you are at a much higher knowledge level than most of the people that you would be working with if you're an investment 
advisor mm-hmm. or a financial planner. Everybody is brave in a bull market. Yep. The problem is if you try to, if you take their bravery and you turn it into an asset allocation based on what their risk, they think their risk tolerance is after the market goes up 250%, you would be doing them a disservice. Agreed. Because they would capitulate in the next bear market and there's no way they're going to get that back and you would have really done a disservice to the client. So even though it's technically correct what you said, we want to get the best return for the clients. We would like them to know as much as we do, but I can't take my brain and put it in their head. So I have to pull back and work on what is in their best interest. And sometimes, even though having 100% equity is certainly in somebody's best interest, it isn't in their best interest because they're going to capitulate as soon as the market goes down. And so it's not in their best interest. And so the other side of the coin is the emotional reaction. And the hardest part about what we do as financial advisors isn't the, you know, the asset allocation, technical, efficient frontier, whatever. It's all 20, the same for 20, every yeah, company. Yeah, 25% small value, some REITs or whatever it is. That, that, that's the easy part. You know, I can, teach, I can teach my 10-year-old how to do that. The hard part is reading the client and trying to figure out what is the best strategy for them, knowing the technical side, knowing what they need, but also knowing how people act. Right. And that's the hard part. And I'm even personally, I'm a little unsure of my opinions in this area because uh, I spent six years working with clients, the first three of which were focused on insurance, the last three of which I started to build my wealth management practice. And during that time, I never walked with clients through a major downturn. And by the time even this, you know, all the, the... the tiniest of downturns a few a few uh, months or so ago, uh, I wasn't I, I wasn't working with clients and working with client portfolios. So I've not walked through a, a difficult time period. I've, it's it's an intellectual exercise for me, but looking at it intellectually, the concern that I have, and what I always felt when I was doing planning, is that as a financial planner, our major tool that we should be utilizing is not necessarily the asset classes within the IRA portfolio, but the asset classes that the client is more used to uh, controlling. So thinking, yes, could you keep $100,000 of cash in the checking account and or you could keep the $100,000 in cash or, or a short-term bond in the portfolio. And it, yes, it has the same effect. But the reality is that the cash in the checking account is, is accessible for the client. So I can point and say, look, d- ignore the portfolio over here and look at the $100,000 in the checking account during times when the, the, the market is down. And I look and I say, okay, a 60-40 uh, portfolio versus 100-0, when is the is the is the emotional mania driven by the actual numbers on the statement or is the emotional mania driven by the newscaster on five o'clock saying, well, the Dow Jones industrial average dropped today by 487 points. So it's, it's both because you can imagine when the, you see that the market's down 2% in one day, you don't need to um, look at your statements or get online to know that you're down. You know that. So you're, you're going to have that reaction Anyway, but to your point about putting stocks in one uh, fund, let's say your IRA or your personal fund, and just have all stocks there, and then your emergency money maybe being in a short-term bond fund or CDs, 
And so together you might have 70% stocks and 30% bonds when you put those two together. Mm-hmm. In somebody's head, when the market is going down, they only are looking at the stock portfolio. And, and well, okay, I'll give you a story. So I used to fly fighter aircraft in the military, and we, and, and we have had situations where pilots are rolling in on targets and they roll out and they come, they want to hit that target so bad, they get fixated on that target and they drive the plane right into the ground. Okay. Mm-hmm. They kill themselves. So, what happens is the same thing here. The clients will fixate on the, just that equity portfolio mm-hmm. and they'll drive themselves into the ground and blow it up. Uh, so, that's why I say, should you have a portfolio of just stocks over here? and maybe a portfolio of just bonds over there? Or should you have a balanced portfolio on both sides? And what I find is that psychologically, it's, it's easier for people to, ha- even though the same asset allocation, 70-30, to have a 70-30 over here in your personal savings account and 70-30 over here in your IRA account because you don't get so fixated on the... Uh, on the dive, if you will, that's going on. Is, is that? Yeah. Okay. So what about this? What about the fact that clients are looking at a bond portfolio, no matter what the numbers say, then it's very easy for the news mania to creep in and say, well, interest rates are going to rise and your bond portfolio is going to plummet in value because interest rates are going to rise. And yeah, the Federal Reserve, if they make this tiny rate hike, then all of a sudden you're going to be down 40% of your value and bonds, your bond, your bond mutual fund has an unlimited duration you know, over time because it's always got to be, it doesn't. It's, no, what it I doesn't. mean is that <laughs> instead of looking at it and say, okay, this bond, this individual bond issue that I have is going to, uh, going to mature, they can say, well, this mutual fund, yeah, it has a duration, but because there they're always cycling new bonds in. Maybe this bond portfolio can evaporate. That, I've seen that mania too. Sure. And so, you know, without data to, to, to come against that, it's so easy for us to be susceptible to even that, this fear of bonds. I don't, I agree. And, and we've probably had more bond fear yeah, than last, we've had stock fear right. in the last six years. Right. But, and, and we have had, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was talking to, I won't name him, but it, it's a, uh, uh, I happen to be in the offices of one of the very large robo-advisor firms, because mm-hmm, right. I, I know them all really well, so I go visit them. This one happens to be in New York, but I won't mention their name for <laughs> compliance reasons. Anyway, I'm there and talking with them, and uh, they were trying to figure out how to answer questions from clients who call in and have fears. Right. And the fellow who I won't mention his name uh, said, uh, we were thinking about having a dial-in number where it says, if you think interest rates are going to go up and the value of your bonds are going to go down, (laughs) press one. If you think the stock market is going to continue to fall, press two. And, you know, then get a recording. Right, right. Because it's the same answer. Um, But, uh, yeah, these fears are difficult for people who don't have a lot of experience. Right. And, and this is where the advisor comes in. This is where we make our money. Uh, we make our money figuring these things out. Like I said, the technical side of this is easy. It's the emotional and the, you know, the coaching side for the client that's, that's hard, the therapy side you know, that's hard for the client. But if we can do it, if we can keep them invested... And, and keep them on track, stay the course, like John Bogle says, that's really uh, a value added to the yeah. client. Last qu- uh, question. What, uh, so let's talk from your academic 
background and perspective. I've had a few uh, portfolio managers or people who are you know on the show who talk about this. One of the most popular uh, portfolios, and I've I've talked about it on the show, it would be the uh, permanent por- portfolio. Uh, the idea: twenty five percent in each of four asset classes, including sure. including gold, including cash, uh, and cash equivalents. Uh, Academically, that portfolio, depending on what you look at, often doesn't seem to perform when compared against other portfolios because of the underexposure to to stocks. However, emotionally and psychologically, I believe it's powerful. Even for me, I still at times consider, I wonder if I should just be running the the permanent portfolio. And it's so emotionally powerful that I wonder if it's not a better solution than we often give it credit because it fits that narrative and it allows you to look at the movements of the monetary system. It allows you to look at the government system and say, well, okay, I've got, I've got these protections in place. What's your perspective on that? All right, I'm going to back up to a 10,000-foot level. There's a difference between investment philosophy and investment strategy. What you just talked about was a strategy. Philosophy is... I'm going to buy these four different asset classes. I'm going to do it in a low-cost way. I'm going to buy a U.S. stock or a global stock index fund, a total bond market bond fund. I'm going to put my money over here in, I don't know, one-year CDs, mm-hmm. and I'm going to buy a gold ETF. Right. Okay, But it's going to be passive. It's going to be low-cost. It's going to be 25% in each, and this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Right. Okay? That's that the idea of doing passive low cost is a philosophy. Uh, now, you and I, I believe, or I don't know, but maybe you and I have the same philosophy about low cost passive is the way to go. I don't know if you believe that or not, but I do. And when I all my clients do, because that's the way they're investing. So that's philosophy. So mm-hmm. or the other side of the philosophy is active management, try to pick managers who are going to outperform, try to time the market and all that. So that's the, that's the other philosophy, okay? I gave up on that years ago. So I'm in this uh, church right. here, and I'm right. pretty, pretty far up the, the number of pews. In fact, I'm probably at the altar. <laughs> but anyway, so that's the philosophy. You're preaching from the pulpit in this <laughs> yeah, right yeah, I'm in the choir anyway. Uh, John Bogle is the uh, high priest, yeah. but I'm in the choir. <laughs> exactly. But the, uh, okay, so, so everybody in the church has the same philosophy, no one in that church has the same strategy, which is what you were talking about. How, for me, should I take this philosophy, divide it up into an asset allocation in different asset classes, implement it, and maintain it? Everyone in that church is going to have a different strategy for how they do that and how they apply it to their life. Same philosophy, different strategy. So to get to your question is, if it works for you, great. That was a really fast answer after a really great intro. <laughs> I like it. Um, Rick, tell us about your um, service offerings for advisors and for individuals. If anybody wants to work with you directly, books, websites, materials, uh, uh, let's, let's have your commercial here for the ways that you can help uh, the listeners of this show. Oh, I appreciate that. So you go to rickferry.com. I tried to make it simple, even for myself. If I have my <laughs> name on my website, I won't forget what it is. R-I-C-K-F-E-R-R-I. I, that's correct, F-E-R-R-I. And uh, there I have my blog, I have my books, I have a link to 
to our company website, which is Portfolio Solutions, and there we actually implement the, this philosophy for clients using various strategies based on their particular needs. And we implement it through uh, custodians such as Schwab and TD Ameritrade. We charge a low fee to help them determine what portfolios they should have. Uh, and then we uh, do all of the back office administration and rebalancing, you know, purchase everything, rebalance, report, and all this is standard portfolio management stuff that we do. And we do it at a low fee. We've been doing it for 16 years. Recently, we've reached out to advisors and we said, we will now do this for your clients directly where you have a portal and you're going to run that relationship with the client, but we're going to manage the portfolio using the same strategies. The fees for this are, for clients who come to us directly, it's 37 basis points, and that includes access to our CFPs to figure out what their investment needs are and so forth. If an advisor is uh, in the picture and the advisor sends us a client, it's 25 basis points management fee. So that's, that's what Portfolio Solutions does. We have $1.4 billion under management. We've got uh, a staff of 16. We've been doing this a long time. We were the original low-cost uh, RIA out there, and uh, you know, th- there's a lot of competition out there now that wasn't out there before. I'd like to believe that because we've been so successful, right. people have seen us and said, "Let's copy it." Right, and that would include that great big company out in on the East Coast that we can't talk about. Of course, <laughs> well, I just love. Uh, <laughs> it's never been a better time to be an equity investor. Uh, it's as far as costs lower than ever information, access to information lower than ever, but it's better been a worse time probably to be an uneducated investor uh, because the manias seem to get worse. The uh, It just seems to get tougher and tougher. So uh, Rick Ferry, F-E-R-R-I.com. Thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome Thank back you. anytime. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Those of you who are longtime listeners to the show will uh, have heard loud and clear, clear my tongue-in-cheek at the beginning of the show uh, when talking about that this is the only right way to invest. <laughs> Hopefully, you've gained and learned a lot from Rick. He's a really great guy and extremely knowledgeable, and he presents a strong case, and I would encourage you to become knowledgeable about those options and make sure that uh, you're using the information that he shared with you and also other information that you can find as well to figure out what is best and right for you. Uh, so I hope that you learned a lot, and I hope you really enjoyed that. Thank you so much for listening to Radical Personal Finance today. I really appreciate each and every one of you who listens. Thank you especially to those of you who share the show with others. I've done very little marketing for Radical Personal Finance. I decided that I could either spend time creating great content or I could spend time marketing. In the beginning, I didn't have the capacity for both. And still, uh, I don't have the capacity to do both really, really well. So anytime I have a decision of, Joshua, do you want to sit down and create another show? Or should you work a little bit longer to try to create a better show? Or should you go ahead and try to figure out how to do some new marketing thing? I always choose create a better show. But what that means is I need your help to market the show. I need your help to share the show with others. The best way to do it is just simply to tell somebody else about the show. Uh, If you would like them to listen, just tell them all they need to do is search the app store on their phone and they can download our free app. And we're in every single app store. So we're in... uh, iOS App Store, Apple App Store, uh, uh, Google Play, uh, for any Android device. If you have a BlackBerry, you'll find it. My dad has a BlackBerry, and he finds this when he has my show. Um, 
<laughs> downloaded them, BlackBerry. Uh, Windows phones, we have an app for Windows phones, and we have an app for, what's the last one? Amazon, Fire Phone. My wife has a Fire Phone, uh, and she's got my app. So all of those options will work, and you can find the app. So please tell somebody else about the show. Just tell them, search the App Store for Radical Personal Finance, and they can listen. I know the content is voluminous. Uh, at this point in time, well, I'd like to create some better, more uh, synthesized, carefully built courses, and I'm working on that. As soon as I can get that done, I will do that, which leads me to the Patreon campaign. Thank you to those of you who support the show on Patreon. Uh, at the moment, I would ask – let's uh, pull it up here before I run out of music. At the moment, there are just under $2,500 a month of pledges on, on Patreon Patreon from a total of 236 patrons. Uh, I would love to get that number to $4,000. As soon as we get to $4,000, I intend to release to you guys an awesome course. So if you are not yet pledging on Patreon, please go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.